We're speaking today from the Tanager offices in the City of London with Renee Quo, an expert in fine wine, about what's involved in starting, building, and managing a fine wine collection. Renee, selecting the best wines for drinking or as an investment can really be a challenge for anyone. But before we talk about that, I'd love to ask you about your own journey from a big career on Wall Street to the wineries of Napa Valley in California to working for a fine wine merchant here in London. Many people dream of giving up the day job to follow a passion. Is that what happened to you? Well, Kate, first of all, thank you for having me here. And yes, that is absolutely what happened to me. I like to say that finance drove me to drink. And, um, <laughs> you know, it might not have been the finest wine when I first started out, but I was really excited about learning. So when I left business school and joined Bank of, Bank of America Securities in Los Angeles, I had the two best mentors. And rather than trying to keep their top clients to themselves, they said, look, there's plenty of business to go around. We really want you to meet our top clients and take them out and entertain. That was a big part of my job in sales and trading on Wall Street. And um, they were kind enough also to tell me that if I made a mistake on the wine list and ordered the cheapest bottle of Planck on the list, that they would kill me. So on one hand, they said, yes, go ahead and meet our clients. But on the other hand, they said, don't mess it up at a nice client dinner. Make sure you learn something about wine. So one of my bosses, Susie, really encouraged me to take wine tasting classes and in LA, there was a wonderful wine shop called Monsieur Marcel, which at the time offered a um, wine tasting class where they would introduce to six wines and three cheeses, and it was taught by two Frenchmen, Guillaume and Laurent. And uh, I cut my teeth there, and pretty soon Susie did not realize that she had opened up a Pandora's box. I fell headfirst into wine, um, loved it much more than selling bonds, but never in a million years thought that I would be able to make a hobby, uh, turn that into a career. And in fact, many people um, understandably cannot because the world of Wall Street is so lucrative. And my colleagues and I had spoken for a long time about the so-called golden handcuffs. I was in a fortunate position, I suppose, being single and not having any children. Um, to where I had worked in Wall Street nearly a decade and had a little bit of a nest egg and had spent my free time going to wineries around LA, around the um, Santa Barbara area, and then up to Napa and then traveling to Bordeaux. And this was really my big expenditure was wine trips and learning more about wine. And I even got my degree um, or certificate in viticulture and enology from UC Davis via correspondence and had, you know, delusions of becoming a sommelier one day, but thinking, how can I give it up? And all my friends, in fact, who worked in wine, whether they were servers or sommeliers or worked in a retail shop, said, don't give up your day job, just keep buying fine wine. But um, in 2011, I finally decided to hang up my heels in Wall Street West. And in fact, my company made it a lot easier for me because I was working for um, a bank that was financed by a hedge fund, and the hedge fund decided to stop funding that securities business. So I essentially was out of a job, had another job offer for the same role, same title, same wonderful clients, etc. And I just decided, you know, 
life is not only too short, but it's too long to do something that you don't want to do. Um, and while I enjoyed the great eight years I had in a Wall Street career, I was really dreaming of getting to the vineyards, really wondering whether or not I could make a career in wine. And because I didn't have the same liabilities of a lot of my colleagues who lived in New York, were putting their children through private school educations before they went on to college. Um, you know, I was single, owned my place in Venice Beach, but thought at the time, you know, 2011, people are still mailing in their keys. If I have to, if I can't rent it out, um, you know, let's just give it a shot. Life is too short. So I decided to hang up my heels and head to the vineyards of Napa Valley where I started from ground zero. I was hired by um, the wonderful Staglins at Staglin Family Winery in Rutherford. And I was one of the oldest interns I think that they had ever had. <laughs> so I was working for, you know, an hourly wage, uh, picking grapes and uh, dragging hoses, pumping over wines. It was the hardest physical labor, um, you know, probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever had, but so rewarding. And from there, a friend of mine said, no, 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 you've really got to leave production and, and put those business skills to work. And I, he introduced me to a great wine retailer. Um, and then I ran a winery in Napa before I met my British husband and moved here and joined a wine retailer here in London. So it's been a wonderful journey. Wow. Um, and totally <laughs> inspiring, I think, for all More our crazy. listeners. <laughs> a little bit of both. And um, I should say uh, that it is not for everyone. I mean, I I did know that I had a bit set aside in case it was an epic failure, and then I, I did keep contacts and finance. And here in London, I the you know the trade is fantastic. It is one of the most historic and traditional wine trades in the world. It's a great environment. Um, ironically, I've chosen um, to move on from retail only because I found that London, the career for wine merchants is really just in sales, and I missed a lot of the business opportunities. So my plan is to um, start up collecting fine wine again with my new role, but uh, um, I certainly would not discourage anyone from pursuing their dream and, and never think it's too late to go into something else. Fantastic. Well, let's let's get to right into the business of starting and building and and collecting fine wines. So, um, you know, one of my favorite films, uh, Sideways, um, wine snobbism gets a fantastic send up yes. in that movie. Um, but for many of us, the world of wine does seem like an elite club that is difficult to penetrate. So my question to you is, what advice can you give uh, listeners who want to upgrade their knowledge of wine before investing in a collection? That is, those are great points, Kate. Um, first of all, I felt the same way, and I really... I'm not happy about the fact that so many wine connoisseurs do try and keep it as an elite club. 
Um, I think there's a lot of terminology. There is a lot of there can be a lot of pronunciations of French or Italian wines that intimidate people who may not be able to speak a second language. Um, you know, the remembering vintages or specific names of chateau or the name of a wine can be very difficult for people. Um, I would encourage people not to give up confidence because I'm sure that they can remember uh, the years that their favorite sporting team won, whether it's you know um, English football or American football. They'll they'll remember when you know the San Francisco Giants. My hometown, you know, won the World Series. And it's all things that once you develop a passion for something uh, and become more familiar with the terminology, it really becomes a lot easier. So I would say have confidence in yourself. Don't um, let the terminology throw you off at first. Just go out there and drink, basically, is what I would recommend to people. Also, I would have a think about whether you want this solely for investment or whether you also plan on perhaps drinking the wines that you're buying, or maybe you're hoping to drink them all, but if the value goes up, it may be an investment uh, that turn out to be an investment because you would never imagine drinking a wine that you purchased 10 years ago that now has shot up, you know, 500% in value. So uh, if you are going to invest in a collection, really determine what you like to drink, because if the bottom falls out of the market, this is, you know, maybe... Uh, a liquid asset, pun intended, but it is not really as easily tradable as stocks, bonds, etc. It is an alternative asset. Um, in terms of what to know for investing in wine, think about the time horizon for your return. So there has been a lot of speculation, especially in Bordeaux, just because of the volumes and the global reach of that particular region's wines. But, you know, there may have been some cases where in one or two years you saw an immediate run-up in value, but then really this is a long-term um, investment. And with that said, then you have to know which vintages are capable of aging long-term as well, too, and which regions are best for aging long-term, and the producers, etc. So um, once you start dabbling in wine, and really the best way I think one can start is just by drinking various wines, is to become familiar with the vintages, the regions, the um, major producers, you know, the chateau, and and also, you know, a lot of names can sound very familiar and might throw you off. So, for example, um, there is a Lafitte, in Chateau Lafitte in Bordeaux, which most people may have heard of. It's one of the first growths of Bordeaux, but then there's also a Smith Lafitte, which is from a different region in Bordeaux, also a very good wine, but um, and they make a white and a red. So, Make sure you get to know the names, the spellings, the labels, because I would hate for someone to think they're investing in Lafitte and end up buying a different wine altogether. Um, other things to uh, keep in mind are the importance of Robert Parker scores on certain regional wines, especially Bordeaux in California. Uh, Robert Parker is an American critic who um, really came uh, into... Um, one could say infamy, but one, you know, it, one could also say uh, into the limelight with his verdict on the 1982 vintage in Bordeaux. He really raved about it, and most of the wine trade, especially the British wine, uh, wine trade, widely panned that vintage. And when 1982 did emerge to be one of the best vintages in Bordeaux's history, Robert Parker, of course, skyrocketed um, into the limelight. And so any score he puts, especially on Bordeaux or Napa wines, any rescore he does is very highly followed by not just the wine trade, but by consumers, speculators, etc. 
Um, you know, some other things to consider is uh, the major retail players, because unfortunately there are now with the advent of being able to purchase a lot of your wines online, which is a benefit and a, a curse as well, um, you can comparison shop easily, but there are unfortunately some scoundrel um, scoundrels out there on the internet in all walks of life um, who are not uh, real retailers. So make sure you Google and do your research on that. Um, uh, otherwise, if you want to go to magazines, you know, Decanter magazine is fantastic. Um, I always read Jancis Robinson's column in the FT. I think, you know, any British wine paper will have a great columnist on, on wine to introduce you to certain regions. Um, you can certainly attend consumer tastings. I've seen more and more wine retailers doing this, more wine bars, restaurants, etc. cetera. Um, but then uh, major wine retailers will also invite clients usually for the cost of a ticket to attend a specific tasting and certainly if you're really finding yourself intimidated and you had a great red wine last night you just can't remember it by all means use your smartphone take a photo of it and there are all great sorts idea. of um, wine apps like I believe you know Delectable or Vivino you can look on the app store and find out uh, all the different wine apps that are out there where you can actually take a picture of the label and it will let you know certain things about the wine, what the price is, what retailers have it in your area, etc. I think that's all great ways to start learning about wine and, and wines to invest in. Fantastic. Um, I'm ready. <laughs> so, uh, Renee, we've all read the reports of Chinese and Indian and Russian buyers really driving up the price of fine wines. Can you tell us a little bit about the global <laughs> wine market? And um, in your view, is this a good moment to think about investing? Well, Kate, when it comes to a good moment uh, to think about investing, I will say what most of my economics professors always said when you ask them the question, which is, it depends. <laughs> so, um, you know, wine has been a very well-performing alternative asset uh, studies have shown that correlations to uh, assets such as stocks, bonds, gold are not highly correlated, which could make it attractive. That said, as you mentioned, you know, with the influx of buyers adding on to already the traditional collectors, whether that's China, India, Russia, Brazil, etc., um, I would say that that correlation is getting higher as more people speculate. So in fact, we have very much seen with the fall in uh, the Shanghai stock market recently that the fine wine index prices have also been falling, even though I will say that with the government crackdown um, against luxury gift giving in China, this has diminished somewhat, but certainly um, Bordeaux very much suffered from speculation from foreign, I, I don't even know if I can call them investors, <laughs> um, you know, looking to flip prices, uh, flip wines very quickly to uh, take advantage of the pricing. Um, interestingly, according to the Financial Times, um, published in July t 2015, so just recently, over the past 10 years, the LiveX Fine Wine 100 Index has returned 139% versus, let's say, the FTSE 100's 41%. So this, again, was an article in the FT published in July 2015. Now, the LiveX, yeah, first Tell of us all, a little bit about that. LiveX is the UK's online trading platform used by professional wine retailers. Okay. 
So they have a series of indices which anyone can use as a benchmark. I think individuals can purchase the data should they like to get that feed, but really only retailers have access to buying and selling the wines uh, on their platform. But their Fine Wine 100 Index, as I mentioned here as this benchmark, specifically tracks the price movements of the top 100 traded fine wines. So, you know, Lafitte may be in there one month and fall out the next, etc. but it is really the top 100 fine wines that are traded by volume um, in the LiveX Fine Wine 100 Index. So, uh, while it has returned 139% over the past 10 years, according to the FT, over the past five years, I did this data on LiveX myself, did the research, it's seen a negative 20.4% return. Huh. And over the past year, has only seen a gain of 2.3%. So regarding your question about the global wine market, um, you know, it has traditionally been focused on Bordeaux, uh, certainly because of the UK's ties to the Bordeaux wine market. That's very historic. It goes all the way back to the days of Henry Plantagenet and uh, his marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, when he decreased the taxes on wines being exported from Bordeaux and coming into the UK. <clears throat> but um, in the heyday of, say, 2008 through 2011, the Bordeaux um, region made up 95% of the trading volume on LiveX. Um, now it's below 70%. So I would say that investors are really getting quite smart about diversifying into other regions. That includes vintage champagne, burgundy, and um Italian wines, especially what are known as the super Tuscan wines. I, I know from having sold quite a few of them myself that they are perhaps the most beloved um, wine by collectors as well as newcomers to wine. I think because Bordeaux and Burgundy might be a bit intimidating, um, there's something very approachable about Italian wines. And I think um, Collectors and investors have really started seeing a good return on certain of those wines as well, too. But one really has to know, the, again, the names and the vintages. Um, for example, just to give you an example of the uh, some of the Super Tuscans we've seen. Um, so, of course, LiveX has an Italy index, and their uh, Italy 100 index has risen 18% from 2010 to 2015. Um, and that is dominated 75% by Super Tuscan wines. Now, Super Tuscans, I can give you a little brief background of that. They okay. are, of course, from Tuscany. Please do. They are, of course, at Tuscan wines. Um, but interestingly enough, with the Italian wine laws, in Tuscany, it was designated, especially in Chianti in the 60s and 70s. If you remember those flasks that you would see on Italian restaurants in the States with the red... They became yeah. candle holders. Exactly. It's so true. They were emptied, uh, maybe poured out the sink rather than consumed. Uh, Chianti used to have to be made up of both white grapes and red grapes with a certain percentage of uh, the Sangiovese grape and, I mean... It could have been up to 30% white wine. So uh, the uh, couple of enterprising but also traditional wine drinkers in Tuscany with the name especially of Antonori um, determined that they wanted to have more of a Bordeaux model and really have noble wine grapes making these excellent wines, which unfortunately by Italian law, could not be designated Chianti. So they had to be called table wine, which was 
you know, cheap and cheerful or just cheap. And um, through genius of marketing, after uh, Sasakaya emerged and was winning all sorts of awards, and then, of course, Tignanello um, was perhaps the first Super Tuscan to hit commercially, the very wise marketing people created the term Super Tuscan rather than Italian table wine. So um, the perhaps the creme de la creme of investable wines right now is Massetto, which is the 100% Merlot from um, Ornelia. And if you had purchased the 2004 Massetto, it's now up 100%, and the 2007 is up 40%. Um, regarding your comment on sideways, we'll make you laugh because it is an 100% Merlot wine, much like Petrus is. So there is much to be said about the Merlot grape. Um, but as I mentioned before, you really do have to know your vintage and your producers, and also, you know, the release price. If um, if a certain producer has seen a, a run-up uh, in investment uh, or vintage has been overbought, you'll see, of course, the price drop. And in fact, Celaya uh, has suffered from this since 2007, if you had purchased it upon release, which received 97 points from Robert Parker, so very, very good score, is down 35% um, since its release. So you know, one really does have to know the global wine markets, different regions, producers, etc. But there are plenty of opportunities to invest in wines. And it's not all Bordeaux. <laughs> it's good to see. Um, although that market has stabilized quite a bit as well. You may find it interesting. I, I love data. So I did um, do this research on LiveX as well. Um, the 2008 vintage of Lafitte, which was not a not celebrated as a great vintage or a classic vintage, but it's a very good one, released in London at £1,850 per case of 12 in bond. Um, by 2011, it reached its peak of about £14,000 per case of 12 in bond, and it now trades at just under £5,000 per case of 12. So you can see if you purchased it upon release from 1850 to 5,000, you've done very well. But if you purchased it at the peak at 14,000, you have not done so well. And um, of course, the 2009 vintage in Bordeaux was so widely celebrated that the next year Lafitte released the 2009 in London at 13,000 pounds per case of released. 12. Released it. So from 1850 in 2008 to 13,000 per case. Um, so this was again a lot of foreign investment coming in um, from, you know, as you mentioned, China, Russia, etc. Uh, and a lot of people got caught. And as Warren Buffett says, I believe his famous quote is, you know, you don't know who's naked until the tide goes out, right? So right. unfortunately, the tide went out on a lot of purchasers because these prices were way too high upon release. Um, my favorite adage is that if you go to a party and someone tells you to buy this stock, um, chances are give it a miss <laughs> because it's already it's already run up by that time. And the same holds true for wine. And the same <laughs> yes does hold true for wine. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Um, let me ask you this. If I were interested in building a private seller uh, for consumption and or as an investment, yes. what are the most important considerations that I, you know, things I should keep in mind? And can you speak a little bit about the issues such as storage, insurance, and you've already mentioned yes. holding a wine in bond. What mm -hmm. does that mean? 
So I had to learn myself when I moved to London from the States because we do not have the bonded system in the States. Unfortunately, the tax man cometh when you purchase something. And here in the UK, I believe with many luxury items, I can only speak about wine, um, you are able to purchase a case of wine or any bottle of wine um, and defer paying duty and VAT on it until you actually have it delivered to your home or an, until it, be, it gets shipped out of a bonded warehouse. So um, UK Customs or Her Majesty's Customs um, has a slew of bonded warehouses with quite a few of them specializing in fine wines. This could be Octavian, Vinatec, London City Bond, etc. And, and major wine retailers will have their own bonded warehouse that they use. So they will have a, an account with an Octavian, London City Bond, etc. Um, this is important, especially if you want to invest in wine, because the minute the wine comes out of a bonded warehouse, it's a bit like driving a new car off of a lot. Um, you know, you are taking this wine to a seller. One has no idea how the wine is being stored in someone's home. So I will say whether, um, you know, your listeners are going to be drinking their wines or using this as an investment, if you're taking the wines home, do not store them in your kitchen. Do not store them by the oven. Do not store them anywhere where, because um, heat is going to be the major enemy of any wine. It, um, I always think about, you know, if you bite into an apple and then you leave it out and then all of a sudden it starts browning, uh, that's oxidation. And so what happens when wines heat up, um, the cork can shrink a bit, the wine can heat you know, too high, it actually cooks your wine, um, there can be seepage out of the cork, all sorts of damage, and there goes your, you know, 5,000 pound gain on your case of Lafitte. It's basically... Um, only good for consumption if that by that point. So really, if you're looking at investing, then I would highly recommend keeping wines in bond. Now, if you want to keep them in bond and then eventually have them delivered, I will say also the, the current duty per bottle uh, it, for still wine is two pounds five p. So that could increase over time. So again, if you plan on leaving it in for 10 years and then 10 years from now it's gone up to 10 pounds per bottle, there's not much you can do. Um, and you know, there's also the case, the, the chance that VAT could increase from 20% further. But really, I, I like to think of it in terms of what someone told me about taxes, which is defer, defer, defer <laughs> as long as possible. Um, so really that's the best um, advice I can give for investing is just to keep it in bonds. Okay. Um, and with regards to insurance, my wine collection is stored in the U.S., so I'm not as familiar with U.K., um, and you will find that, of course, trying to ship it over to the U.K., this is why I have not, is, is I think that that can be eye-wateringly prohibitive. So if you're going to start a collection in the U.K., um, I, I would say bonded warehouses, and fine wine retailers should be including insurance in the cost of your storage. Okay. So make sure you know exactly how much that storage cost is um, and if it's prorated and if that includes insurance and make sure the wines are in your name that you have title to them. Um, I know if you're purchasing through a wine retailer as opposed to just being a, a consumer, you should be able to capitalize on the fact that they might have a certain deal just based on the number of wines they're holding in their warehouse under their name. 
as opposed to you going in and, and calling up Octavian yourself. It, it might be more economical for you to purchase through a wine retailer. And, and wine retailers can always transfer your cases to your bonded warehouse. So if you buy through one retailer and they store at one bonded warehouse, you can, I'm sure for a fee, have it transferred to your own personal bonded warehouse as well. Great. Okay. Um, finally, <laughs> Renee, uh, we get to the moment where I get to ask you, what are your personal favorite wines uh, to either in drink or invest in right now and why? <laughs> well, to drink depends on who's paying because I could give you any number of wines. Fair um, enough. <laughs> but I think the answer to that, and it's, it's personal as well as from an investment perspective, um, I love Burgundy. So um, uh, Burgundy is, for red, it is uh, Pinot Noir primarily, and for whites, it is primarily Chardonnay. And um, for anyone who is looking for the more buttery, richer, oakier style of Chardonnay, you will likely not find too many choices in Burgundy. Um, if you like yours a bit more mineral, flinty, um, with you know herbaceousness and, and some lovely uh, aromatic notes of, of herbs, I would highly recommend looking at um, village level Burgundy all the way up to collectible. So in terms of Burgundy, the classifications are very different from how they rate Bordeaux. In Burgundy, there are uh, village level wines, which are your entry level, then you go into Premier Cru, and then you go into Grand Cru, which um, can have very grand prices <laughs> as well too. Um, first of all, why I like to invest in it is that production is very, very small and its global cachet is very, very high. So we are seeing more auction houses like Sotheby's, Christie's, Acromeral, et cetera, saying that a larger portion of their wine auction revenue is coming from Burgundy. And to give you a sense of the difference in production, Chateau Lafitte produces approximately 16,000 cases of its flagship first wine, Chateau Lafitte. Um, Demain de la Romanie Conti, which is one of the premier estates in Burgundy, its top wine, its top red wine is Romanie Conti, and it may produce less than 500 cases, on average 500 cases, and that's for the world to consume each year. So production is very low, and the cachet uh, with whether it's UK, American, Hong Kong, and Chinese buyers, you name it. Uh, for example, um, Demain de la Romanie Conti's Romanie Conti released at... 22,000 pounds per case of 12. Um, I believe, I want to say this was for the um, a recent vintage. I, I want to say it was 2009, actually, Kate. It now retails for 96,600 pounds per case of 12, if you can find it. Um, the peak was over 120,000 pounds, so it's come down since then. But the important thing to to realize about wines which are produced in such small quantity is that they are very highly allocated. So when I was in the U.S., the importer went out to a small number of collectors to offer, you know, three bottles of Romani Conti's, uh, six bottles of this. 
Um, I think Alex Ferguson very famously sold his collection of Romani Conti recently. So it does take a certain type of buyer to get onto the allocation list. Doesn't mean that you cannot find them in the secondary market, uh, but at the same time, it may have been a run up in pricing mm -hmm. within that secondary market. So definitely get to know your producers within Burgundy because there are some which are not as eye-wateringly expensive, but are very good investment wines. And contrary to what most people might think about the ageability of white wines, some of the most collectible and best investment wines can be white Burgundy as well, too, which is capable, especially in the village of Corton Charlemagne or the Grand Cru from Montrachet, are very highly coveted and sought after by collectors. Gosh. Um, <laughs> well, Renee, we have had a really a brilliant uh, <laughs> tour of, of fine wines. Um, I loved your story <laughs> of, of going from, from finance to stomping grapes in Napa. Um, I've learned so much um, uh, about drinking, enjoying, getting excited about learning, and ultimately perhaps investing in fine wines. And I want to thank you for being on Tanager Talks. It's been my pleasure talking to you about one of my great passions and loves. And um, if I might say, Kate, for me, wine was always something to share. It was always something to open and share and um, not necessarily to invest in. However, of course, you know, when you see the percentage returns one can get um, from this particular alternative asset, it absolutely makes sense to both love wine to drink and to consider it as an investment. But um, I think one has to be a lot more cautious when <laughs> investing, of course, uh, because if you're unhappy just purchasing a wine and drinking it, you can either use it for cooking or give it to a friend. <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> Wise words indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kate.